3: Welcome to Burn It All Down. It may not be the feminist sports podcast you want, but it's definitely the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Amira Rose Davis, Assistant Professor of History and African American Studies at Penn State University. And I am joined by my co host this week, my fellow historian, Brenda Elsie, Associate Professor of History at Hofstra University, and Lindsay Gibbs, my fellow Gemini, Sports Reporter at Think Progress in Washington, D.C. And it's here. The World Cup is finally here. And we are all so excited. If you haven't checked out our big mega World Cup preview show that aired last week, go ahead, do that. Plus, we have a hot take that breaks down every group. But the games have started. So you can bet we're going to break some of those down today on the show. We're also going to be chatting about the French Open that wrapped up this past weekend. Plus, Shireen talks to Erin McLeod, former Canadian women's goalkeeper, soccer legend, and I should add, Penn State alum. But before we start this show, we have to shout out both the NBA and the NHL, which are going into the final part of their Best of Seven series. At time of recording, the Bruins are playing right now. It's killing me slightly, and that's happening. And then also shout out to Shireen and her Raptors, who are now one win away from being NBA champs. Brenda, Lynn, have you been watching the games? Heck no. I'm very excited. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've not
0: been watching the NHL. I've got to, I don't have time for that right now, but I do have to say that, you know, by the time you all are listening to this, there's a possibility that Shereen's son is going to be an NBA champion. <laughs> you know, with the Raptors. So, you know, I'm hoping for Shereen that her
1: family will get that joy.
3: So. And Brenda's dropped all pretense; she cares about nothing else except for the World I Cup. See,
1: look so. at my house. Look at the dishes <laughs> piling up. Look at the <laughs> look at the laundry. <laughs> It's well, it's not uh, for lack of love. It's just the bandwidth <laughs> is only so wide.
3: True. And this is a very hectic time of year. So, I mean, this weekend alone, we had the French Open and we had the NBA, we have the NHL, we have the WNBA, we have baseball still chugging along. And <laughs> I it's forgot just baseball existed.
1: Yeah, Literally. it exists.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: I have to tell you, I'm so looking forward to when the NBA finals are done. I can't wait for all the leaks about all this Kevin Durant drama <laughs> like, <I'm> just, like <laughs> dying to know like all of the gossip because it's just coming out and like will he play won he play how matters teammates, you know what's going on behind the scenes. So I always love when seasons end and you get like all the juicy stuff just like leaks out from whoever lost, you know, in heartbreaking fashion. So that's what I'm looking forward to. <laughs>
3: and for the NBA the is so good for that. And they do it so publicly on Twitter. <laughs>
0: It's It's so fun. It's so fun. I adore it. And yeah, that's
3: all I say. All right. Now let's get into the show. So the French Open just concluded this weekend. It was topsy and turvy a little bit on the women's side on... The men's side, it featured old staples to the game in um, The King of the Clay. So, Lindsay, take it away. What What are your observations on the French Open?
0: Yeah, well, okay. So, Raphael Nadal won the men's, which is, you know, 12 French Opens, 20 or 18 slams overall. It's ridiculous. And I know I should not be bored by greatness ever. <laughs> do know that from the bottom of my soul. At the same time, I have to say that the continuity in men's tennis over the last like eight years has has worn me out a little bit. So let's mainly talk about the women here. This was Ashley Barty's coming out party. The 23-year-old Australian won Her first major on her least favorite surface, which is, you know, lovely. You know, she's going to her best surface now in grass. So who knows what's next? But she has a remarkable story. You know, she was a teen phenom in Australia, a country that puts a lot of pressure on its teen phenoms. And she really, after breaking out onto the WTA tour in her teens, she needed a little bit of time away. And she started playing cricket in Australia. She quit tennis, played cricket and was very good at cricket, but then after a few years of that, she decided to come back to tennis. I believe it was, you know, 3 years ago she came back to the sport without a ranking and has, you know, worked her way up and here we are, you know, and this is the potential that people saw in her when she was this this, you know, 15, 16 year old. And I just love seeing players reach their potential. I love seeing these stories kind of come to life. And, you know, Ashley Barty, if you've been paying attention to women's tennis, this is something you've been expecting. It just was a matter of time, it felt like. Like you said, it was a weird tournament. You know, I would say the quarterfinals, I thought up until the quarterfinals, I thought that while there had been some surprises, there were a lot of kind of understandable surprises to me. You ended up with three Americans in the quarterfinals, Madison Keys, Amanda Anisimova, who is, you know, 17, 18? 17, I not forget yeah. now. but 17, just so young. And then you had Sloane Stevens. And if you would ask which three of those were going to make it to the quarters, you know, the Amanda Anisimova would have been ranked, last on that list for sure, especially because she was playing against the defending champion, number three, Simona Halep, but she's the only one who advanced keys lost to Barty Sloane Stevens had an awful match and just got hit off the court by, uh, Johanna Conta. And all of a sudden you're here and, you know, um, uh, Anisimova is in the semis against Barty and she plays really well Took takes it to three sets um, ended up losing that third set, 6-3. She was really the breakout star of this tournament, along with another semifinalist, Marketa Vandrasova, a Czech player who's only 19 years old, who ended up um, making it all the way to the final. So she beat Kanta in the semifinal, 7-5, 7-6. And then it was a disappointing showing in the final. She really never found her game. It was, it was a little bit... Uh, y- She was a little flat-footed, and her shots just weren't falling, and Barty played what she called the perfect game. And I don't really think that you can um, argue against that. But yeah, I mean, I love seeing these teenagers come up. I love the youth on the tour. I love that there's so many faces that are so competitive at all times. And, you know, we'll have to see. I mean, I I want to ask you, Amira, because... You wrote a piece for NBC Think that kind of touched a little bit on how there's so much attention especially from American media on Serena at these majors and oftentimes that amount of attention of attention is both detrimental to Serena and to the rest of women's tennis because it it sucks up all the energy and it keeps you from getting to know a lot of the names and it puts just an unbearable amount of pressure on Serena's shoulders you want to uh, I'd love to hear more of your thoughts yeah
3: yeah yeah so I wrote this piece because the first and only alert I felt like I got from the French Open up until the finals was when Serena lost and she's been injured. She hasn't had a lot of tournament play. Um, I also got uh, like a paired notification when Naomi Osaka lost. And it reminded me of this kind of feverish. I felt desire by sports media and sponsors and whatnot to kind of crown Naomi Osaka as Serena's heir. And so I paid a lot of attention to how the kind of articles responded, media responded to both Serena and Naomi being out in the third round fairly early in the first week of play. And one of the things I noticed was it felt like people just then tuned out which, as you said, Lindsay, I think is a disservice to the depth of the rest of the the field. But it also reignited a lot of these arguments that you can find an article. When I was writing this, I found articles from like one every year going back like eight years, basically arguing that without its stars, women's tennis, where it's going to, go away. It's going to crumble up and dry. And I do think it puts this kind of burden on the stars to carry the sport in a way that we don't make these kind of expectations of men's sports. There's this idea that men's sports can sell itself because it's men playing sport. And yeah, the stars help. But even if Nadal wasn't in the finals, even if we didn't get the Nadal-Fed matchup, even if we didn't have that, You know, there would be a basic assumption that it was worthy of being watched and consumed. And there's a way that I feel that the stars, the kind of crown media stars, are really great for people who kind of parachute in to pay attention to the Grand Slams. But they obfuscate in many ways, these other really great talents with compelling stories like Ash Barty, like you mentioned. So that's what I was kind of trying to do with that piece is say, hey, we have a whole generation in depth here, which actually shows the growth of the game, not that it's lacking because we haven't found the next dominant player. It's about depth, not dominance.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it always infuriates me. And I feel like you know, most of my friends and um, are only interested in Serena. And I understand that being casual fans, and they get mad at me sometimes when I say, you know, well, I don't think she's a favorite here, or no, you should watch this match instead, or, you know, watch this player. And I think, you know, it, it, Plays into sometimes it plays into our ability to want to protect Serena and make sure that she is given the love and adoration that she deserves. And that oftentimes the media hasn't given her for because of her race and <laughs> her gender and all of these things. But at the same time, in tennis, since she is such a sensation, she does take up most of the attention. She is the star that drives it. And it oftentimes really frustrates me because there's in order to understand how good serena is you have to have respect for her opponents you know you cannot like part of the reason why this is it is going to be so hard for serena to win another major uh, after really giving good. birth and at this age is because the tour has gotten better thanks to her. You know, that's right. part of it. So, yeah, it's, 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 there's a lot and here. It's,
3: and it's something I see across other women's sports. I think about this with like women's college basketball and everybody who like doesn't watch who's like, oh, who even cares? UConn's going to win it all every year. And I'm like, have you checked the last few years? <laughs> that's not the point. Like, appreciate their dominance because of how hard it is to do, but also understand that the parity is in, is is telling you how much competition is out there and yeah it's and i feel like that actually brenda perhaps you agree or disagree i don't know um with the women's world cup this year is what we're seeing with people who are kind of again parachuting in now and saying oh the u.s is going to dominate in so many brackets like crowning brazil and i'm like yeah they're traditional powers but if you're just looking at those teams right now because Name recognition, you're missing how much talent there is in the Women's World Cup and how hard it actually is for a lot of these squads to get back on top because the field is closing. It's closing across all of women's sports, generally, in my opinion. And I think sometimes we lose sight of that. Brenda?
1: I mean, that's really interesting. I guess what that prompts for me in the parachuting question, we could do a whole show on. Like, what does that mean? On the one hand, it's really exciting to have people care. About women's sports and come to it kind of new and excited. And on the other hand, there's of course like an inner part of me that's like, you know, (laughs) that's not cool. That's not cool of me. But it's it it's true. It, It brings up it kicks up some of these like pushbacks, which is like that's you know that's just not right. Um, but my question would be because I'm not I don't follow tennis as closely as the both of you. As I listen to you talk, my question is like. So, okay. So, Serena's made this tournament better. She's made women's tennis better. But how is there a kind of defining sort of um, style of play or advance of this generation? Is there something that you're seeing in this younger generation that is new and different?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it's more just the all-around game. You know, we – we talk about power when we talk about Serena and Venus. And look, rightly so. Their power is a big part of their game. And it's really transformed a lot of tennis. But they also, and, you know, and Serena especially has such a phenomenal all around game. That you know, she, Serena. One of the my favorite you know things about Serena is that she was really, really small growing up, and she was always playing up with Venus and you know Venus's friends. And so, as this really small young player, she developed a really great return game in order to kind of be able to play with the bigger kids. She didn't develop you know her strength until much later, after she had kind of developed the like roots of her game. And I think like what we're seeing now is players who really can do it all. I mean, the serving is much better even than it was just a few years ago. Um, you know, you're seeing players like Angelique Kerber, who's not young by any means, but you know, but you've got like Kerber, even Halep, who has much more power than people get her give her credit for, but also just, you know, this this craftiness because that's another thing. The Williams sisters are so good in uh, Serena in particular that in order to beat them, you have to be able to do a little bit of everything. And so I think that's what I love most about the women's game right now is how many great all around games we're seeing and how we're seeing this great combination of movement and quickness and, Crafty shots like slices and volleys and the kind of more traditional, you know, as Mary Carrillo, our friend Mary Carrillo always calls it, you know, the big, big babe tennis, you know, the the big forehands and big backhands. So I love watching women's tennis so much right now. And, you know, to go back to a thing that you were saying earlier, Amira, I know we, we need to move on, but it's – it always – irks me when you're later in tournaments and people are like, oh, we're missing the stars because the great thing about being later in these tournaments is that a stage itself is a star, right? You are watching someone, try to get into the finals of a grand slam. Like that is so high stakes. That is drama within itself. You know, you don't need a Serena Williams to sell that. You know, I understand if it's like a first round match, that might not be tough, but like these stages are the, should be the stars themselves. And then you get to know the stories within it.
3: Yeah. No, I think that's a great point. And and we can kind of conclude by, you know, meditating on Brenda's point about, the parachuters as well, which is for me it's not necessarily the individuals, but it's the media apparatus and it's really indictment on the lack of exposure to women's sports outside of these big stages, outside of these moments. So that when we get to a grand slam, we don't have a uh, idea of the fact that it's a stage as grandose as it is because we haven't seen the whole circuit. When we get to the women's World Cup, we don't have a sense of the state I mean we get it because of the pomp and circumstance, but, you know, because we don't have the n w s l or we don't have you know the the kind of leagues in Europe, like we don't have the media infrastructure in the same way, um to me, that's really a lot of it is that we get these snapshots um and we all know how hard it sometimes it is to dig for women's sports year round when it's not. In, on center stage in the bright lights and that's few and far between. But I think one of the offshoots is of that is this tunnel vision that it can create. All right. Well, if you are looking for more tennis, don't worry. We're in my favorite part of the tennis season and we have more tournaments coming your way uh, and then another slam in just under a month. So be on the lookout for that. And now we are back to the Women's World Cup. Brenda, it's here.
1: (laughs) It's here. It's so much. It's so much. It's already been fantastic. And there's a ton to talk about. I guess there's a lot of ways to structure this conversation. But for one thing, I don't think that we should do anything about the Women's World Cup without acknowledging the fact that the tickets are completely messed up. Oh, my god! Like, FIFA, what is wrong with you? What are you doing? What are you doing? Like, the local playhouse has it covered. Like, people are <laughs> sitting together. People are, when their tickets have be, been reissued so that they're sitting together, then that ticket doesn't work. You know, it's been wild in terms of that and, like, really, really disappointing. This just shouldn't happen. Shouldn't happen at all. So I just want to throw out there some shade before I start with all the super super fun stuff. We can talk about the opener: France versus South Korea. France looked amazing for the first time in my entire sort of sports career. I've been predicting things that sure to come to an end. <laughs> um, Wendy Renard, who we previewed, and or I'm Wendy Renard. <laughs> Channeling Shireen's proper French pronunciation, Wendy Reiner, eh, was incredible eh, and had a brace, and I predicted it. Très bien. And eh, I'm, I'm, like, not even – that's, like, literally me trying to pronounce French, and they're laughing at me right now. I'm worse. It's okay. I thought Norway was Fantastic. Just absolutely clinical. We could talk Brazil versus Jamaica. I have a ton to say about that. And I guess the other thing has been uh, the use of the VAR, the VAR uh, technology. Oh, oh, I do not. Do you like. not see? I'm really happy about it. You like that, it? Well, no, I feel like, like it. Oh, I don't no. like it. I don't. But there's a way in which it straightens the immoral arc of the universe. Okay, so you tell
3: me why you like it and I tell you why I think it's so horrible.
1: Because there were many, many goals that were not allowed that were in. There's just no way True, to see that. But my them. thing,
3: Bren. Okay. Yeah, no, no,
1: no. I'm good I'm good listening. But to part things. of this
3: but part of this is that because of the VAR, they're told to hold their offside flag and let the play continue and then bring it back. Because you you have to see that you can't use it until the ball hits the back of the net. So I feel that it's not actually true representation of how many goals would have been called and allowed to stand because on some of those are obviously offsides and the flag would have gone up. But because of VAR, they're trained now to not hold it. And so what happens is you get this swell of emotion, especially I feel like watching it at home where you might not always have the angles, where you see it go in, you cheer, the crowd's cheering, the player's cheering, and then they're like, oh, no, sorry, you're off signs. And it happened so often that I just was like, you know, it it, fe- it made the game feel choppy to me. It made it feel choppy when they were reviewing handball, you know, like like it just felt like it was more choppy than I wanted to be. And maybe that's just because it's getting off and running but it did. There were moments where I was just like, "Ugh!" like, let them frickin play. And, you know, there's a way in which we have all this technology to make things like, oh, as equitable. They can and, and whatnot. And I get that. And I think that it's a great tool to have on hand for particular decisive moments that the referees would have huddled up
1: anyways. Well, especially if there's goal differential, it's just it's got to be. It just has to be. I know it's like, I agree with you, and it's a little bit halting and still did. But today, I don't think Cristiani's third goal would have counted in the Brazil versus Jamaica match. I looked at it. I was watching it with my eyeballs as peeled as the next person. And Yeah. No, see, that's a goal that I can understand. But I'm saying in the Italy-Australia
3: match, there was two Italy goals brought back that... On second sight was very clearly they were offside mm-hmm. But in how the plays unfolded, like as a person watching from home, I couldn't see that either time. So yeah. I was like. Oh, there's a second one called back And then I saw it and I was like, oh yeah, okay But I also feel like those are two incidents Where on the field, they would have just Blown it off sides and they wouldn't have even Got to that far, like we wouldn't have been Like, oh, it was called back, we wouldn't have Like, I just stopped playing with my emotions is my point
1: (laughs) Well, welcome to the Women's World Cup I mean, we're just It's (laughs) it's gonna be a wild ride I I wanted to ask either of you, I mean, there was A couple of games that were interesting And I do think we should come to Italy, Australia as the biggest upset thus far but also, yes yeah but before we do maybe we should talk south africa spain you know did you watch that match what was your how did you feel about those penalties
3: not, not great not great not great not great friend so i don't know i just i didn't like the refereeing super much in that match i, ha- I have to say i i don't know i felt like they're very fast with the whistle at times. Did you feel like it was on?
1: No, not that particular game. You know, I I remember we were texting back and forth. And I mean, the way in which they were talking about the South African team had a lot to do with focusing on their physicality. Yeah. And I did feel like that was racially coded. Yeah, (laughs) I, I felt like that was really racially coded. I thought... They did it again in the case of Nigeria, the calling that I was but, listening yeah. to, but in the case of Nigeria, I thought it was accurate. they were
3: playing, <laughs> yeah, and I think, but like you do bring up this point, um that Lindsay just mentioned too when she said coded where it took me approximately thirty seconds into the World Cup to remember how much I hate all these coded colonial languages, (laughs) like from, from the match commentary to the pregame and postgame packages. Like, it's just, it's like the Olympics. Like it's so apparent and so deeply ingrained to how they view the sport and how they police, particularly bodies of color, black bodies, especially in terms of their physicality. And then even like with South, with um, South Africa, Oh my gosh, it was irritating me so much because there's all of this stuff. Janine Van Wick, their captain, who's one of the only white people on the South African team. There's all, and she's, don't get me wrong, phenomenal players, the captain, the leader of the team. But there was all of this, ways that so many commentators said, well, she's gonna have to get them under control, or she's gonna have to get them to be disciplined and not emotional and um you know reel in their play and you know control their effort and it was all of this stuff like they were so boisterous and fun and dancing and singing and all of this minsterly shit, and they just needed this like white captain to like control <laughs> their energy to have a chance and I was just like, "Oh, fucking spare yeah. me, yeah,
1: fair <laughs> enough <laughs> i mean i think I think that game was called not." Not well, and I think it was a Chilean ref, so I'm mm. kind of bummed because go Chile.
3: But generally, I haven't
1: had you know, and that's the
3: other beef with it. Is sometimes I feel like women's sports are called like you know tighter in terms mm-hmm. of physicality, and I can never you know, and I'm fully <laughs> fully admitting the fact that I get super triggered by this because it sends me back to all of my sporting days where I was always in foul trouble, right? Like I oh, like I have so much terrible i would even say like in the case of one particular incident like really bad trauma around calls and like how like what is kind of fest like thrown onto your body when you're just playing in a way that feels natural and feels like how everybody else is playing and the cards come faster and, you know, the screams And, the, like, it's just a lot And so to see it even at the highest level I think I'm particularly, like, ah
1: oh, Well, and they're called so differently some of these games are yeah. just Are called so tightly And uh- Yeah, England, Scotland, they were just Letting those girls play <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> which may- They were just like, oh, look, they're English and Scottish Hello but maybe that also wasn't great for, <laughs> for Scotland <laughs> <laughs> I'm not not like really sure. I mean, it was really interesting. I actually thought I can't even believe the words are coming out of my mouth right now. But I I oh I also thought the Brazil game. I I mean, if we talk about mm-hmm. racial coding, I didn't think Formiga deserved that yellow whatsoever. Oh, yeah and the fact that at that particular moment she is she was the afro-brazilian player on the field i couldn't help but question it i mean because she's not nervous and confused she's been there seven freaking times she's in control mm. of her body like that tackle looked to me like well anyway whatever we can <laughs> we can we can talk about it i mean i i don't think you're wrong to point that out at all like I think you're absolutely right that that's going on. It's just a very hard thing to parse out. It's hard to oh, know when it's happening, but we know we see the patterns over time. I'll be interested to see as the tournament goes on because there's things to be written about this and and to draw attention to it. You know, I mean, to a certain extent, the VAR was supposed to help with some of those decisions that maybe went against the African teams that weren't as familiar to the refs or something like that. But I don't know that that's really happening. Did did either of you see the big upset? Australia, Australia being upset yeah. by Italy.
3: I did, Linz. Did you watch that? But
0: I, I did not. But I'm dying to know what you guys thought of that. And also, I am dying to know, friends. I, I really want the <laughs> two minute Brazilian rundown. Yeah. So first of all. <laughs> Italy, I mean, Australia, what happened?
3: (laughs) What happened? Oh, my goodness. This, to me, was the best game so far of the tournament. It was exhilarating. Everything about it was exhilarating. And it felt like as the game went on, Italy gained confidence that was palpable. Like, you could see... Chances were there on both sides. It was flying around. There were so many chances for both teams. Like I said, those two goals from Italy called back on VAR once they were offsides. But I think that it gave them confidence in watching a team build confidence and possess the ball coming down the stretch is like magical. And then to have in stoppage time a goal with, what, 10 seconds left in stoppage time to to pull off the upset was just... I screamed. It was early as hell, and I was screaming in my house and waking all my damn kids up. Bren?
1: Yeah, I mean, I was too nervous about the Brazil game to pay that much attention. <laughs> I would like to say that Burn It All Down, I we did on our preview, and and we is definitely me and the others, said Italy is underrated. Yes. But Australia got caught. Looking. We are
0: so smart. We're good. We're we are, good at this one. Are.
1: Now, as soon as I say it, you know, I don't, I'm usually the kids of death. So if I say someone's going to have a good tournament, it almost never happens. This is very rare, and I'm sure it'll stop soon. Okay, Brenda, can you talk about Christian now, please? <laughs> <laughs> First of all, I agreed with Zajava's decision for once to leave Marda off. I didn't think there was any point to having her go out versus Jamaica when she wasn't 100% because it's it's going to be a tough group for them. Italy beating Australia really throws a lot into question about that group. That is not what most people predicted. Now, here's some highlights here. So I always have disagreed with putting Dabinia behind Marta. Dabinia should play at the top of the pitch as she did today, and she's so fast. She she didn't get on there and she got shut down a little bit because Jamaican defenders are also very fast and and were very ready for her. However, the through passes that she was dishing to Christiani that she all the plays she made happen were insane. The fact that she didn't get a goal is really just luck. You know? So I'd like to just say that for me was really important because Vajal's been playing her behind Marta and it really shouldn't that I don't think that should be the, the case. So I thought it worked out for for them today. I also would like to say that I am historically a huge complainer about Barbara, the goalkeeper that was on today, and thought he should have put Alina in. And my God, the world is a new basket each and every day because she did an incredible (laughs) Job. She just, from the very first minutes where she came so far out of her goal and was like, oh, hell no. Like, this is not how it's going. Like, I am not here to, like, just bump your volleys out of the net. You know what I mean? She was like, she's like, I am in control here. And I thought she did a fantastic job.
3: Well, really, the goal play for both teams was phenomenal. I mean, Schneider, all hail Schneider.
1: Right, because
3: Christian, like, the the hat trick kind of obfuscates that, but Snyder, Sydney was amazing. Like, when she saved that penalty. Great.
1: Whoo- great. Great. She was fantastic. To a certain extent, you have to wonder, is the fact that the you're- tweeting. I was going to say,
0: Us- Usain Bolt's tweet about that was really great. And then what was really bad were the American announcers trying to read uh, Usain Bolt's tweet and uh, <laughs> making fun of his- <laughs> jamaican lingo that was very bad so
1: but his tweet was great and it was good it was fun to see him watching and tweeting you mean a, people from the u.s are no calling goes, games shouldn't mock the jamaican accent
3: oh my god how many times yeah i'm saying maybe take a <laughs> shot every time they said yaman like he would be
1: good lord like is it sticky all up in there people might want to tune in to Telemundo. So I know I've already gone on too long about Brazil. There's no surprise with Christiani. She ended 2015 horribly. She missed a penalty. It broke her heart. It is absolutely so wonderful to see her get that hat trick. Her headers are clinical. They always have been. I'm not surprised, but I am worried that nobody else got on the board to a certain extent, just in terms of confidence. And just one last thing for listeners – if they haven't been sort of, you know, heard this, my one sort of story about Christiane constantly and constantly is she retired in 2017 to protest the conditions of the Brazilian team in an emotional and important Instagram post. they The Federation promised her things. They never came through. She came back in and just, I am so thrilled for her. There's just not a harder worker out there. Wonderful.
3: So at the time of listening to this, we'll have already seen Argentina and Japan as well as Canada and Cameroon play. Um, And then when this airs on Tuesday, we'll be wrapping up group play with New Zealand and the Netherlands, Chile and their debut versus Sweden. And I don't know if you've heard this because they say it literally every five minutes during the broadcast, that the U.S. will play Thailand at 3 p.m. Eastern time on Tuesday, (laughs) June 11th. Literally, Brenda, I almost broke my TV. At one point, it was within – it was – I think it was a tie game It might have been the Australian Italian game There was a corner kick With like a minute left to play During this corner That could decide a game They say oh and the big games Coming up on t- It's the World Cup They're all big games Like what the hell are you talking but about But
1: Thailand has such a
3: good shot
1: I oh mean my come gosh, On I edge of our seats
3: Anything
0: Alright So like,
3: <laughs> I know I shouldn't be, but I'm excited. I'm excited too. I am I just too. I am too. Like you don't have to remind people every five minutes. Like there's like a like nobody forgot in the five minutes that you told us that they were playing on Tuesday. Like nobody forgot. Hey, anywho, so the World Cup has started. As you can tell, we here at Burn It All Down are so very excited. We can't wait to continue to watch group play. Next up. Shireen
4: talks to Aaron McLeod. Hello, flamethrowers. It's Shireen here, and I am so absolutely excited and honored to have Canadian legend Erin McLeod on Burn It All Down to talk to us about the Women's World Cup, her journey, her experiences, and maybe some predictions. Erin is joining me from Sweden, where she plays professionally. Erin, you need no introduction, but I will introduce <laughs> you. Erin McLeod is a incredible goalkeeper. She has been the staunch defender of our net and our country's pride for a great number of years. She has not, not only an Olympian, she is a World Cup attendee as well. And not only that, she's an incredible advocate for the players. She has helped formulate one of the most positive and important, impactful contracts for the Canadian national women's team. She's an amazing advocate for LGBTIQ, and she's just a phenomenal phenomenal human being. Aaron. thank you so much for being on Burn It All Down. Wow. Thank you. What an introduction. <laughs> Very nice. Can you tell me, and I'm sure you answer these questions all the time, what was your journey to soccer like? When did you fall in love with the beautiful game?
2: That's funny. So I started really young. I, I started playing when I was about four years old and I wasn't like totally sold on it, like, you know, like peanut league is kind of unorganized and it's like bumblebees. Everyone's just kind of like following the ball everywhere. But I do remember the next year we moved as a family to Calgary and again, playing in the peanut league. And I was, I was referred to myself as a a tomboy and the color pink was like the enemy. So there was that. And we were playing in this peanut league and there were like all, there were so many boys and just like a handful of girls. So they put all the girls on one team and they called us the Pink Panthers. And we were pink head to toe. Oh, and wow. we, we got annihilated every game, every game. It wasn't even fair. And at the end of that season, I was like, I want to do this. So, oh, wow. <laughs> so, which is kind of funny. But that's kind of how my soccer journey started. To be honest, I fell in love with sport. I think we've had this conversation before, but I in my family, we were just like obsessed with the Olympics. And Elizabeth Manley in 1988 had an incredible performance. She was like bawling at the end of it. And she, I think, was surprised by her own performance because it was so wonderful. And I'm looking around the room and I've got two sisters and my mom and dad and like everyone's bawling. And that moment for me, I was like, I am going to go to the Olympics. And it took me a while to figure out how I was going to get there, but I knew then. And, and yeah, the Pink Panthers, I think was kind of th- my starting point. <laughs>
4: That's amazing. The Pink Panthers. You were the Canada starter in 2011 and the 2015 World Cups, 118 international caps and 114 as a starter. So the question that a lot of people might have is, or oh, you're just legendary. And I think one of the myths for women's soccer is that it came easy for you. And I love that you laugh about that because I, we know that's not the case. And you know, so can you tell me a little bit about that? Like you're, you're, Sheet speaks speaks for itself. Your resume speaks for itself. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. So I actually, I want to
2: say in the 2007 World Cup, I played as well as a starter, but this is how it happened. So in, in 2003, I was the third option for the goalkeepers. And Karina LeBlanc was number one within that tournament. Evan Pellerud, who was our coach at the time, the Norwegian, put Terence Switek in for the rest of the tournament. She had a wonderful tournament. And I was like the number three. And I was kind of like a young, naive kid because I had just finished playing in this under-19 tournament in Canada. And that was kind of, I think, the beginning of women's soccer. I mean, I can't really say that in a humble way, but I think it was kind of a starting point where a lot of people started paying attention anyway to women's soccer. And so from there, I was the number one. So I just kind of thought, oh, I'll just be the number one for the national team. And it, it didn't go that way. I thought maybe I'd be the second choice for that World Cup. And then I was quite clearly the, the third choice. And looking back, uh, you know, I obviously was. But what it taught me is just how hard I wanted to work to get there. So I remember doing, I remember for six months, I was so mad that I wasn't even considered the number two that I, I woke up at five o'clock every morning with Sean Bagshaw, who we played together for the Whitecaps is a good friend of mine still. And we'd, we'd wake up before the sun came up, we'd go to the gym, come back, then we'd have an afternoon workout and then we'd go train with the Whitecaps in the evening. And I did that for like six months. And then after that, I just became totally dedicated to learning the strengths and weaknesses of my competition and making their weaknesses my strengths, and then also working on my own weaknesses. So I, it's fair to say that I was pretty obsessed for a while. And then in 2007, Karina LeBlanc was still the starting goalkeeper, but she got hurt. She hurt her shoulder uh, literally, I want to say four or five days before the World Cup started in 2007. And then I kind of was the the starter ever since. It was kind of back and forth, and you know, Karina will say the same. Like when John came in, you know, he was testing both of us, and it did kind of go back and forth for a while. But yeah, that's all the big tournaments from that point on. I I started, so it was interesting because I just always remember being like, you know, what I'm going to work my hardest, I'm going to try my best, and when I get my chance, I'm going to like I'm going to seize my opportunity. And we didn't do very well in that 2007. World Cup, but I personally felt like that was that was one of the better tournaments I had at that point. And yeah, and then from then, I just continued working. And, and <laughs> probably why I've had a lot of injuries is knowing when to push myself and when to take it easy. It hasn't been a strength of mine that I am now learning uh, because I have to. But I do think kind of that obsession, you know, you'll see it in a lot of athletes like Conor McGregor, who... I have a lot of respect for, I mean, he's a lot of hoopla, but what is cool about him is he just, you know, he kind of like, you know, when he was 16, there's like this YouTube video of him being like, I'm going to be the best in the world. And I'm going to do this, 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 he has like three or four things he's, he, you know, was obsessed with doing and he's done them all. And I mean, I'm not Conor McGregor, but I, similar, you know, I was like, I'm going to go to the Olympics. I'm going to be this starter. I'm going to be one of the best keepers in the world. Like I had this list and yeah, I was pretty pretty obsessed with that or have been
4: you're a far better person than connor mcgregor but you know to recognize <laughs> that that work ethic is really i can't important. comment on that <laughs> i don't know is <laughs> really really important that work ethic and that grit and that's something that you know i've been following the canadian women's team for a long time and that i've seen that dedication to getting better and that humility for those that don't know, I wrote about Erin for The Athletic. And I remember thinking, wow, why is she so humble? Like, this is is irritating. This is Erin McLeod. And, you know, I just, I really respect that. And thank you for that and your, you know, World Cup, you know, experiences. And for a lot of people, the 2012 Olympic Games as as somebody who takes in and as a supporter was really a momentous moment. And we talked about this in a previous interview that I did with you, that it really became a catalyst for this type of movement to support the women's team in Canada. And for those that are listening that don't know what happened, Canada was playing the United States at the Olympics in London, and it was a really incredible match, like just back and forth, a lot of physicality, an incredibly intense match, probably it's the most memorable match I've ever seen. And I'd taken a (laughs) lot of soccer. So what ended up happening was Aaron was called on a rule that was sort of obscure and not really a lot of referees call on for holding the ball for longer than six seconds. And that awarded the United States a kick, which to, I think the entire country unified in it's, you know, being outraged by that and it changed the tone of the game. Canada ended up, uh, losing that match. And then the US went on. But at that moment, I think we've, and through that game and through the emotion of the players. And in that moment, Aaron, was that something that also motivated you? Uh, yeah. So first of all, yeah, I'm, I was
2: extremely proud of that US game. Obviously you're always like more proud of things when they're done and some of the emotion has subsided, but The the really cool thing about that US game is as far as like TV ratings and viewership, that we were equal to the men's like Olympic hockey final. Wow. In Vancouver, which is unbelievable, I think. But I think what I, what I, I'll never forget this conversation. I had this conversation with Sonia Bombastel, who plays for France. And yes, that game was hard to take in. But what I am so proud of is our team's reaction to that game. Sinky in the locker room. You know, he doesn't say very much, but when she says something, it's normally extremely impactful. And she said, like, I don't know about you guys, but I'm not leaving here without an effing medal. <laughs> and and you know what? It was kind of cool because John was going to come in and say something and he heard that and he walked out because nothing else needed to be said. So that conversation I had with Sonia, Sonia Bombastel, it was after the game and France annihilated us statistically, possession wise, shots, everything. And we won. And, <laughs> and Sonia comes to me and she said, you know what? You guys have, she's like, you have this connection. You will not give up on one another. She's like, and we have, you know, and it's true, even true of the French team now, they have an incredible amount of talent, but the connection, the glue that we had won us that game. And for me, that's what's most important because we built that playing losing that US game. We needed that. And the moment we lost that game, ever since then, we know as Canadians how important it is to have one another's back and work each other like just work your ass off and never let the person down beside you. And that's why we're always harping on being a good Canadian and being a good human being. Because the reality is if you like the person that you're playing for, you want to fight for them. If you think they're a dick, you know, you're kind of like, well, you know, so I've really valued that. And I think as a team we really we held on to that.
4: Definitely. I mean, that win was spectacular. Like, it wasn't the result we wanted with the U.S. game, but that sort of determination and indomitable spirit is something that really, really is, is thematic with the Canadian women's team's journey. You are currently injured and we're not named to the World Cup squad, but you are so intrinsically involved in influencing this this team. And very recently, it had been announced in media so incredibly that the Canadian women's team, 15, followed your lead to sign up with an organization called Common Goal, which is an organization that helps football developing grassroots organizations around the world. Can you tell us why this is so important? Yeah, I think it's so important for
2: a number of reasons. So, what I really valued when John Herdman was on board with our team is he was always like, and kind of what I was just talking about, like he's always been like, it's really important to be a good Canadian and, and leave a legacy on the field, but also off the field. And um, recently we have come to an agreement with our contracts is better than any contract that any, probably most female team players have ever had in Canada. And I think for me, uh, and I was talking to Sinky about it, I'm like, wouldn't it be cool if one of the first things that we did after signing that contract is give some of that back and like talk about people we've got like a a Jordan who's she's, how old is she's Jordan 19 now. yeah 18 18 years old and she's just you know about to sign a big contract and that's the first thing she does 18 years old and that's like the future of our Canadian national team and so for me like the reality of women's soccer now is we are becoming more and more popular and there's more eyes on us. And so I think it's important to be leaders. And and I'm going to say it more so than the men, Please because the men are making <laughs> a million times more than we are. And we have already a national team who has agreed to put 1% of their salary towards common goal, which basically means you have a bunch of these different Organizations you can put your money towards. Um, The one I've chosen is Canada Scores, which is based out of Vancouver. There's a couple in Canada, there's some all over the world. They're wonderful organizations. And I knew it would be an easy sell because I know the type of human beings I'm dealing with with the national team. And we were the first team at the World Cup to do it. So, yeah, I think for me, you know, if I have, I'm done with the national team, or if I only have a year left, or whatever the case, like, what I really value, what, what Karina LeBlanc said when she left is that you always want to leave the team better than when you got there. And I believe in my heart that we're already on the right track and I'm excited to see what this team is going to do, but also they're already an inspiration.
4: Definitely. And your, your impact and your influence cannot be understated. It is so (sighs) important. And I say this to someone like, When we were talking, you had mentioned that you used to watch Craig Forrest, a Canadian goalkeeper, who actually the only time the Canadian men's team has ever qualified or attended the World Cup is in 1986. So like that's just something. And as you're saying, the contracts are significantly different in payment amount for the men who have actually not represented on the stage the way the women have. And so your influence and also what you're doing off the pitch completely affects other young players in this country. And, you know, I have a daughter who's a goalkeeper who shakes when she hears your name because she's so excited. (laughs) And uh, just, you know, it's your influence and who you are is so crucial for the development in this country of really good soccer. So some fun questions in that sense. What Is your most memorable World Cup experience? And have you ever like been starstruck yourself? Like you're Aaron McLeod, but have you ever been starstruck when you someone walked on the pitch?
2: Oh, players that I played against. Yeah, I remember actually. I was. I can't remember what year it was, but I remember watching the 1999 World Cup. Like we went as a family; we were traveling around the U.S. and I think it was in Portland, and I watched. I think we were there for like a Germany game or something, but regardless, like that's when Mia Ham and Shannon McMillan, that like that group, that like incredible group, I I remember watching that game or watching them and watching that World Cup and being like, this is unbelievable. And then a couple of years later, playing against Mia Ham and Shannon M- Shannon McMillan. I think Shannon M- McMillan may have chipped me from half, or she tried to. <laughs> <laughs> I'm
4: not sure if that went in.
2: But she was phenomenal and and Mia Ham was phenomenal. I think we lost six nothing or something, but for me, that moment was like, it was cool because, you know, you, in life in general, I think you kind of, you like always have a goal. You're, you're like, you, you're like, oh, I want to really, really want to make the national team. And I remember making the national team and how cool that was. And then once you get there, then you make new goals. And then I remember playing them and I was like, I want to be able to hang with these guys. But I just remember how good they were. You know, those like specifically Shannon McMillan and Mia Hamm, like, and so many players on that team, it just they really changed women's soccer and the expectation that they had on on women female players, so I was Star trek in, in that moment, and then i think and I think my probably my favorite World Cup moment was probably in 2015. I and mean, there was a there was a lot because we were playing in Canada like it was just unbelievable, but I remember i got I was actually married like seven days after that tournament or like the next day or something, so yeah, it was cool. I remember like. I got like player of the game and then like my whole family was there and Ella, my wife was there. And it was just like, it was just this moment where, you know, you have like all your hard work and all your passion and then you have like, it's like your career, right? Like I just, the whole stadium was full. It was more than 50,000 people in BC Place. And it's just like all the people that got me there, you know, like you never get to the top or anywhere without a team of human, good human beings behind you. I don't think anyway. And all my human (laughs) beings were there. So (laughs) yeah. Yeah. You know, and that was an incredible thing because I I really just got to share it with the people I've hold so dear to my heart. So.
4: Amazing. Um, Any predictions for this tournament, the Women's World Cup? Oh yeah.
2: So God, you know what? This tournament is going to be, I think incredible, first of all. I think the women's game in the last couple of years has just totally exploded. England, I think, is going to be an exciting team to watch. Obviously, the U.S. is always exciting to watch. I think the Netherlands is going to be interesting because... I feel like they were just like on fire during the Euros and they kind of like went down a little bit, but I think they're kind of amping back up. So obviously Canada will be a team to watch. I don't even have to say that, but and Australia too, I just feel like there might be a lot of like dark horses, but I am really, really excited to watch France mostly because for two reasons, um, I think they're absolutely incredible. There's so much talent and somehow I think it's got to be one of the best players in the world right now, just to name one. There's quite a few on that team. But the the second thing is I'm really interested to see how they're going to handle the pressure of playing at home because that'll either uh, make them or break them. I know that it was a lot for us when we played in Canada, but I know like the French men obviously did really well, like playing at home, <laughs> you know, and their Woke Up, I don't know how many years ago that was. That'll be interesting. So I don't know if I have, obviously I would like Canada to win. I think we actually have a very good chance of winning, but I, I do really want to see how France does as well.
4: Do you think that, and and as coming from someone who was part of the host country team, do you think there's added pressure on France because they're hosting? and their counterparts won in 2018, the men won at home in 2018. Do you think that's an added amount of pressure? And can Canada capitalize maybe on that?
2: (laughs) So what I remember is just being like, literally, I was nervous for days. I didn't know how to calm down. I felt like I had had 18 cups of coffee every day when I had like one. So I think that it's going to come down to that. I think think it's really going to come down to how, how they handle the pressure. And we had like a lot of like we had this, the mental side of the game. We we did a lot of work on that side of the game to really prepare for the pressure. So I think it's going to be there. You know, I think it's going to be about their mental preparation, t- to be honest. Like if France is going to be like, okay, this is coming, this is coming, like all the what-ifs, all the worst case scenarios, all the pressure. Like if they've really dealt with it, I think they'll be able to do quite well. I know a lot of players on that team play for Lyon, for example. Some are on PSG, some are in Montpellier. And I think... There could be potentially used to some of the pressure with Champions League finals, et cetera. But I, this is kind of a different beast, I think. So I do think teams like us and a lot of other teams could definitely capitalize. So yeah, I mean that's I'm like I can't wait to see how they're gonna handle it. Cause I definitely think that they have the talent on that team. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Like I cannot say enough good things about the players on that team. So I think it'll really come down to that.
4: You're absolutely right. It's going to be a phenomenal tournament. I wanted to thank you so much for giving us some insight. Thank you for everything you do, not just for what you've done for the Canadian women's team, but what you do for the women's game in general, like your contributions, your impact, just your passion for it. And like you said, as you quoted Karina LeBlanc, to leave it better than you came it's definitely growing like it's a it's a joy to watch and really interesting to see that process and how you've contributed to it do you see yourself like whenever retirement comes or if it comes do you see yourself still involved in the game like coaching or maybe like I don't know owning a team maybe in Canada professional women's team which would be super cool (laughs) yeah
2: owning a team oh my goodness yeah if I win the lottery no I um So I actually just finished, I think we talked about this a little, it's not great to be injured, but what injury often enables you to do is focus on everything in life. And I've been working my arse off on this project um, with Rachel Linval, who's uh, my business partner in this. And it's a, we've created a mindfulness program for, for children ages six to 12 and I literally finished it this week. We are, we're going to start um, promoting it at the end of July. And my heart and soul has gone into this because, and we talked about this a little bit last time about just your mindset. And when, when you start, you start at six years old to develop whether you have a fixed mindset or a growth mindset. And that's from, Carol Dweck, if the listeners are familiar with that. Anyway, just basically how you deal with mistakes and how you see yourself, your self-awareness and how you judge yourself and how you grow and learn. So the the aim of the project is to start this process for these kids so they basically have just a better life. You know, I I am so harsh. I look back at my career and I've always been so sometimes borderline cruel to myself after making mistakes or not having the performance I wanted. And what I've come to realize is that if you read anything about successful people, they fail four or five times more than the average human being. It's absolutely essential for growth. So this is the whole point of the project is to teach these kids to have just a more fulfilling, happier life, realizing that mistakes are are totally necessary. And if you push your limits... And can kind of lose the emotional baggage. You can have like a, just an awesome life. So that is where I'm going to put a lot of my energy. And I cannot see myself not coaching. I was coaching already this week. I was wearing like khaki pants and have grass stains to my hips because I can't help but like get in there and do demos. But yeah, soccer. I just love the game so much. I I hope I hope from in the bottom of my heart I still have a couple of years left. But I I just can't. I just love it so much. I. I can't see myself ever stopping in one way or another.
4: (laughs) Awesome. We hope you never leave. So again, I want to thank you so much for chatting with us and burn it all down. Absolutely loves you. Thank you. And we can't wait to see what you do next. Thank you very much for having me on. All right, folks, it's time for our
3: favorite part of the show, the burn pile. There was no shortage of things to burn this week. Lindsay. What are you burning?
0: Yeah, so I'm actually going to burn something that's happening in women's sports right now, which is a deal with Rakina Williams of the Los Angeles Sparks, uh, who was arrested for assaulting her her ex-girlfriend during the offseason. And this all became public in April, and she was scheduled to have court hearings this week. Throughout this all, um, the WNBA and the Sparks themselves have just kind of said, yes, we're aware of this and we're monitoring the situation. We don't have any comment about anything until the legal process is completed. It was believed that Williams wasn't going to be with the team this week. So she made the roster. Uh, she was one of the last players, but she did make the roster. She's very good and, you know, scored 25 points the other night. And they have said that they are just not commenting on this. She was supposed to be away from the team for a couple days this week for her court hearings. However, they got a waiver so she doesn't have to be in court. And the Sparks are literally not allowing anyone to ask questions about this to the coach, to Derek Fisher, to anyone within the organization. And I just think it's setting a really... Like, bad president. Like, there needs to be more transparency about what's going on here. There needs to be a little bit more openness. And, you know, the allegations against her are really serious. And, you know, women's leagues need to take this stuff seriously too. Not saying that she should definitely be off the team, but the fact that, like, nobody's even. Allowed to ask about it or talk about it, and you know people are getting like you know cut off in pressers if they tr- even try and bring it up. To me, it's just it's just a really really awful awful look. Nobody has been proactive about this from the WNBA to the Sparks. Luckily, some media and the WNBA is starting to speak out. But you know, I just like to kind of throw this this silence and this bearing of this onto the burn pile because women's leagues need to take domestic abuse
3: seriously to Burn. 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 So I'll go next. This past Wednesday, there was a rain delay at the French Open, which we were all very thankful for. For Jess, who had a ridiculous travel to get there, and so that it that helped her. But the other thing it did was push the women's semifinals up into the same day as the men's, and the French Federation decided that the women would play that. Well, I guess it was afternoon there, but not on the center courts anymore. So both matches took place on the outside courts. And not only this, you know, the WTA blast this for regulating the women to uh, kind of exterior position out of center court, but also if you watch the broadcast, there was twice during a match point where the broadcast cut away from the women's semis so that we could see Rafa and Fed walk in <laughs> to Center Court, and then cut away again during match point so that we could see them warm up. And it was the most infuriating thing. And I just feel like another reminder of, you know, the, the kind of second fiddle that the women's uh, side plays at the French open. And then To kind of put icing on that, it was also the second year in a row, I believe, that the women's final didn't have a set start time because they were waiting for the men's final to finish. And it might seem like a minor thing, but it's just... It's just reinforcing the idea that the main attraction are the men and the women can be regulated to outside court or cut away from their matches or saying, oh, they'll play whenever – you know, after the rain delay or after the men's go, or whatever, um, because they just don't matter as much. That's the message that it's sending when these decisions are made. There's other ways you can put your head together and figure out what you're going to do because of weather or what you're going to do because of timing or whatever the hell it is. These are decisions that people are making and the decisions send messages that reinforce the notion that women athletes are not as worthy of our time our attention or center stage and that is bullshit and i want to burn it Burn. burn all right bren bring us home what are you burning
1: i'm burning the way in which alexi lalas talks about ada hergerberg i can't even believe these are words coming out of my mouth like he should have an opinion on ada hergerberg So the first time winner of the Ballon d'Or, Norwegian player, Ada Hergeberg, is not playing in this Women's World Cup because of unequal conditions from her federation. And in a roundtable on Fox, which was very disappointing to me because um, I do like Heather O'Reilly, so I was disappointed to hear her criticism of Ada Hergeberg. At the same time, I was absolutely uh, needlessly subjected to the opinion (laughs) of Alexi Lalas who is a former men's player who was overpaid or whatever for overpaid on a mediocre team and whatever, like shade at me about all that. Okay. Like I don't care. That's true. I studied the global soccer. And so people who are going to be all up in my business about that was a great US men's team, whatever, like go read something. He wasn't. (laughs) And so she's a phenom. She's amazing. She loves her country. She doesn't not love her country. She's making a freaking point. And Alexi Laos is like someone who doesn't read Norwegian, speak Norwegian, nor has ever followed. I'm sure Ada Hergerberg in his entire life has the gall to say that she has not been clear about her reasons for not playing. I'm like, what? Like, what the hell are you talking about? She's been so specific as to say the very cafeterias in which we eat in are not as good. Like, I mean, how do you get more specific? She said pitches. She used to say salary and then Norway changed to having equal pay. Well, maybe that had something to do with her drawing attention to this. But she doesn't get credit for any of that. All she gets is a bunch of shit from this guy who needs to preach to her about her feminist practice and gender equity. Like Alexi Lalas is the person that Ada Hergerberg needs to win respect back from because he said he would just respect her more. How about he respect the fact that she might understand how to make her own political protest and do it while sacrificing something that really obviously she would want to be doing. She's a tremendous football player, better than Alexi Lalas ever was, and is clearly a better human being. So I would like to burn all of his ignorant commentary about Ada Hagerberg. Can you tell him, man?
3: Burn. (laughs) I just feel like Alexi Lawless has a permanent burn spot through this whole World Cup because I feel like it's not the last time we'll be burning something asinine that comes (laughs) out of his mouth.
1: Probably not, but this one was a doozy for me. This was, like, special. Like, I can deal with, like, I can deal with a lot of Alexi Lawless, but this one went too far for me.
3: After all that burning, it's time to shout out some badass women of the week. Let's start back on the pitch. Shouting out Brazilian soccer legend Formiga, who's not playing in her first, second, third, fourth, fifth, or sixth World Cup, but her seventh. That's right. At 41 years of age, Formiga became the oldest player to ever play in this tournament. And if you watch her play, you'll know she has not lost a step. Formiga, congratulations to you on your seventh World Cup. Also want to shout out friend of the pod, Lauren Silver, Sydney Schneider, and the rest of the reggae girls becoming the first Caribbean nation to represent and play in the Women's World Cup. And also along those lines, wanting to shout out South Africa, Chile, and Scotland, who are all making their World Cup debuts. Over to the tennis courts we go to shout out von Vondrasova, For her second-place finish at the French Open, the unranked teen was a phenom these last two weeks. Congrats to you. And Tamia Babos and Kristina Maldinovic, who are your French Open Women's Doubles champions. Last but certainly not least, we have to give a huge, huge shout-out. To the UCLA softball team, who are now national champions, and a special shout-out to their pitcher, Rachel Garcia. UCLA was in the championship for the last four years without winning it. So this year, the fifth try, they finally broke through, defeating Oklahoma on a walk-off hit. Rachel Garcia was a pitching phenom through the whole thing, earned the accolade of most outstanding player. It's UCLA's 13th national championship. And although it's their first since 2010, so this is in many ways a reviving of a dynasty. Congrats to you. And now, a drum roll, please.
1: <laughs>
3: Our badass woman of the week is Ashley Barty. whose victory 6-1-6-3 at the French Open this weekend gave her her first Grand Slam title. Afterwards, the 23-year-old said, listen, it's just been an incredible journey. The way we've tried to work and develop and grow this game that I have, this game style and kind of Ash Barty brand of tennis, I suppose it's amazing. Yes, it's amazing. And so are you. Congratulations, Ashley. You are our badass woman of the week. now it's time to hear about what's good in your world and you know what i'll actually go first And thank you all for the birthday wishes i had a wonderful time in bermuda and on my birthday i mostly just slept which is fine i've decided that's what 31 looks like for me is reading books and sleeping but it was a wonderful time and i felt very blessed and surrounded by love of friends and family so thank you for that I got a new tattoo. That was my birthday present from my husband. I'm so excited. It has books. It's so nerdy. I love it. I love it so much. And I also want to just shout out everybody who, like, writing is hard. It's terrible and awful. And yet we do it. And I just had a minor writing breakthrough in Victory this week. And I'm trying to celebrate the little things. And so it was a baby step, but I'm celebrating the hell out of it. Brenda, what's good in your world?
1: What's good in my world is Brazil won their first match and Christiani got three goals, but I've already talked about that a lot on the show. I wish Jamaica would have gotten on the board, but I think they are going to, they're going to make it happen. What else is good is that I'm going to Paris on Friday with my three daughters. They're super excited. We taped up our jerseys so that they have women's names on them because you can't buy them in South America. So we're absolutely excited to go to Paris. I'm going to get to meet up with Jess for one day. I'm going to miss Lindsay and Shereen and Amira, but at least I'll get to see one of my co-hosts. And so I'm thrilled about that. I'm just, I don't know. Yeah, life's good in that sense. Very, very good. And all of you indulging all of my women's soccer stuff all the time, that's also (laughs) very
3: good. Awesome, Bren. Lindsay, what's good with you?
0: You know, I've got to be honest, There's this is kind of a crazy time in life. It's one of those little down times. But I, you know, what's good is all the wonderful people around me. You know, my birthday is here. And I'm just blessed to have so many friends and family members, so many flamethrowers, and of course, my co host. So as I am going through this This little spell, I'm just feeling at the same time very, very grateful and yeah, just extremely blessed to, you know, made it through another year with just the best people around me. Must be doing
3: something right. That's it for this week's episode of Burn It All Down. You can listen and subscribe to Burn It All Down on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever you listen to your podcast. Please rate the show wherever you listen to it. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod and on Twitter at Burn It Down Pod. We love to hear from you guys. So keep those tweets, those messages to us on all social media platforms coming. For more information about the show and links, as well as transcripts for each episode, you can check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com. There you can also shoot us an email directly from the site, as well as link to our merchandise store, as well as our Patreon. A huge shout out to all of our Patreon supporters. Without you, this wouldn't be what it is. Um, We want to give a special shout out to you all. And as always, keep an eye on the Patreon campaign for special behind-the-scenes interviews, newsletters, chance to ask us questions to be submitted for our show, and our last Patreon-only episode. So from me, Amir Rose Davis, along with Lindsay Gibbs and Brenda Elsie, that's it for this week, flamethrowers. As Brenda says, burn on, not out.